Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, and he's the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. Andrew is going to introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very well, Nate. It's always a pleasure to join you. Our guest today is Matt Gibson. He is a technical executive at the Electric Power Research Institute, also known as EPRI. Matt has done a lot of stuff over the, over the years. He's, he's managed control system teams at nuclear generators and at conventional power plants. He's managed IT teams. He did electronic warfare with the Navy. He's a licensed engineer with a safety systems certification. And, well, Matt has strong opinions about just about everything. So he's talking to us today about cybersecurity in the electric sector. Okay, then let's listen in to you and Matt. So let's get started. Who is EPRI, and uh, what is it you folks do? Well, that's, that's a good question. Uh, we are a member-supported research and development organization, or nonprofit. We we have members worldwide uh, in forty-some-odd uh, countries, and we do research about everything involving electricity, uh, generation, distribution transmission, utilization, and the environmental impacts of electrical generation. So we, we do we do research in all of those areas, um, and we do that for the public good. So most of our research is uh, available to the public, uh, although some of it is, you know, you have, to, you have to pay for it if you're not a member, um, but it's all uh, for the public good. But the things we'll be talking about today are available nominal calls. Cool. Well, I mean, um, you know, we've got we've got a lot of topics to cover here. Uh, your focus, I understand, is is power generation. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, a couple of months ago, uh, you folks had a, a workshop that I had the, uh, the privilege of attending. Um, and uh, I remember you talking about some sort of uh, hot topics. I mean, um, I remember a, a paper you folks did on the industrial Internet of Things predictive maintenance for nuclear generators with wireless communications. The what struck me at the at the uh, the seminar was discussion of you know the industrial Internet of Things, where you have these sensors connected to the nuclear reactor that are sending information you know more or less you know directly or indirectly straight out to the internet straight out to the vendor in a cloud service you know on another continent and you know i would have thought that that kind of internet connectivity from the the heart of a nuclear reactor was was well forbidden but you know you talked about a research report that that uh, described you know when you could do it how you could do it safely can you talk about that I can. So one of the things we probably want to, you know, give everybody a good picture is, um, and you described it, you know, sort of colorfully there, Andrew, by saying the heart of the nuclear reactor. Well, not really. Your your reactor, the, the actual reactor and the things around it that are involved in the reactor's safe operation and safe shutdown are indeed isolated. 
that's all very interesting in principle. In practice, though, um, you know, a lot of these industrial Internet of Things devices, they want to open up connections straight out to the Internet. I mean, if there's, you know, eight levels of Purdue model firewalls in between, they just want to punch all the way straight out. Is that wise? Is that what you recommend? No, not exactly the way you put it. What we, what we have is a process where you can uh, analyze what's your monitoring and what equipment you have and what role that plays in the facility. Uh, although I think we'll go to talk about it a little later. Um, what a particular digital asset does is very important to understanding its risk to the facility. So for instance, uh, most of your IoT sensors do monitoring. So we don't hook those sensors directly to say a control network. We segment, let's talk about segmentation. Uh, we segment things of similar criticality on the networks and are isolated from each other. So uh, you certainly your control networks and your safety networks are isolated from these IoT networks. No need, no need for that. As a matter of fact, it's a good point you, you brought up there, I don't know. A lot, uh, I would guess it's important to think that about your facilities is needing to be professionally architected. And what I mean by that is the distributed control vendors or the DCS vendors often have made their systems as the one-stop shopping for all kinds of data, even if it wasn't something the operator needed to see or that was needed for control and monitoring of the plant. It was additional information, diagnostic, whatever. Well, there's, there's a lot of benefit to segmenting your monitoring and diagnostic data away from the information you need for direct operator action. So you can separate that information off. I'm talking about physically from the control network so that it's acquired directly and sent to the consumers, which in this case is you're gonna be your engineers, your reliability engineers. So they're working in a back office somewhere analyzing data, trying to decide on how to maintain things. And their data needs are different than the operator's data needs. So, so I can introduce the concept here is understanding your control and data flows and segmenting them properly by function go a long way in reducing your overall threat surface when it comes to, or attack surface, I would prefer that term, the attack surface. Uh, and, and so it also compartmentalizes any consequences you might have from a, from a Andrew, it seemed like you were going somewhere with that question to Matt about IAOT. Did you have something in mind when you asked him? I did. I mean, the uh, you know at the session, I remember a discussion of a uh, a white paper Epri came out with, and uh, it was talking about how to use the Industrial Internet of Things on nuclear generators, and uh, you know to me this was you know, a very interesting topic because nuclear generators are the most cautious, the most conservative, the most safety conscious of industrial sites that, that I work with. And, you know, in in normal sites, in sort of normal power plants, normal refineries, there's a lot of concern and reluctance to use the industrial Internet of Things. I mean, I, I had one power plant manager look me in the eye and say these words, and I quote, Andrew, our strict policy is no cloud connections from the control system ever 
period, unquote. And so if there's this kind of concern about cloud connections in sort of the normal world, yet the nukes have figured out how to do it, I thought, however they're doing it, whatever insight they have into how to do this safely and properly is something that is probably universally applicable. So I was trying to 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 drill into that that uh, that specific advice that that they d uh, developed. And, and if I may, um, you know, Matt answered the, the the question. He talked about the uh, the advice, but he he answered it. He talked about it in sort of the the terminology and the perspective of nuclear generators, um, which is a little different from from everybody else. So you know, he talked about segmentation. In the nuclear space, this means physical segmentation. So, so let me paraphrase. What I took away the 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 insight that you know I thought was fascinating that is generally applicable um, is that this this white paper, the methodology, basically said, um, do your uh, engineering risk assessment of these sensors that you want to scatter all over your turbines or your your uh, steam plant or or whatever. Um, do your engineering analysis of the sensors. Convince yourself that the sensors are truly monitor only. That there is, it's physically impossible for these sensors to create of any kind of unsafe physical condition in the plant. If you convince yourself of that, then you know go wild. Connect them out to the internet. Connect them to the cell phone network if you want. Send the information straight out to the vendor. Um, it's no longer a threat to the operation, provided you do not connect the, these sensors, these internet connected sensors to the control network, because now there's a path between internet and, and control, and this is very bad. But for monitor only, you know, go wild, use the internet of things the, the, the way it was designed. You know, when, so he talked about basically doing this, doing the assessment, doing the segmentation. But when he said segmentation, he meant physical segmentation. Yeah, connect these things out to the internet. Do not physically, electrically connect them to any part of the control network. Anything that comes back into the control network has to come from the internet, usually through human eyes, saying, oh, that piece of equipment needs maintenance. Let me schedule that. Um, you know, human oversight to uh, assure that whatever information trickles back in in terms of a shutdown for maintenance is is done safely. So to me, this is this is the, the, the great insight. So if we have a connection to the internet that is purely for monitoring purposes and can't actually affect any change in the plant itself, then, okay, let's say in, there's a situation where you are monitoring uh, the system and something seems to be going wrong. How does somebody outside of the plant who's doing that monitoring uh, effectively convey that message to the folks in the plant um, without any means to do it themselves? I think the uh, what I was trying to say earlier is that um, when you're collecting large amounts of data and you want to do the analysis, it's important to have an online connection. So, you know, send the information over the wireless, over the wire, over the fiber, whatever, into the cloud, large amounts of data so you can analyze it. Typically, though, with these applications, when you have analyzed a lot of data and you've drawn a conclusion, the conclusion can be expressed very compactly. The conclusion, you know, is sometimes as simple as a text message to the, the, the cell phone of the, uh, the manager of the plant saying, uh, you know, the, uh, the steam turbine on generating unit number four uh, needs maintenance. Um, you know, we need to schedule it inside the next week or we're going to start seeing, you know, uh, damage, you know, 
start to 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 build up. Um, that kind of message does not need to be sent online that second to the plant operator. Um, it like it like I said, it can it can show up on a, a website. It can show up as a text message to a cell phone. It's an offline communications mechanism. That communication bluntly goes into the brain of the person who's looking at the cell phone. That person interprets the message and expresses that message to other people in the plant to act on. Those people eventually start moving the mouse and typing on the keyboard and telling things to the control system. But the very small amount of very abstract, very high level, very valuable information that comes back from the internet is typically filtered through people. It does not have to come back online into the system automatically triggering actions, uh, you know, whose, whose safety and reliability consequences are, are questionable if, if we have that kind of connection. It's, you know, the filtering things through, through human brains is, uh, you know, is, is standard practice at, at some of these sites. But if I may, um, I could also see a vulnerability in uh, a, a system where you're sending text messages to plant operators, of course, you don't want to, you know, lose your phone or get hacked in some other sense. This is absolutely right. And so um, when we have communication from the Internet into a control system, um, it's important to uh, teach the people who are receiving this this communication to verify it before acting on it so for example if i get a uh, uh you know if i'm a, an operator and i get an email on my cell phone from my boss saying uh don't run the biggest pump in the water system um all night because we're you know we need to schedule maintenance on it there's a problem with it leaving the main city's reservoir empty in the morning when you need the water um you know that's that's something that's very unusual. That's something that, you know, I'm not sure this is a good idea. You don't just say, well, it's from my boss. I have to do it. That He must know what he's doing. You pick up the phone, you call your boss, and you have a little conversation saying, just checking. Did you send me mail saying blah, blah, blah? You know, yes, you can ask some questions if you want, get clarification. But um, you don't just believe a piece of email or a, a, a text message. You know, to your example, if uh, we get a text message saying the equipment is uh, has got a vibration problem, uh, we need to shut it down inside of the next week for maintenance. Um, people on the inside, typically not plant operators, engineers would get these messages. But these people would typically go to their systems that are connected to the plant stuff and verify themselves that the data in the control system uh, reflects the conclusion, you know, agrees with the conclusion that the, the, the analysis has done. And they will do this before acting on that, you know, very abstract, very simple message saying you need to shut the plant down. So, the common wisdom in the military space is, you know, trust but verify. The uh, uh, that kind of thing uh, applies as well when we are filtering uh, information messages from from potentially untrustworthy sources like the internet and email. When we're filtering filtering them through our brains and and acting on them, um, there's a, a level of verification that these people are trained to do in the course of that translation between an untrusted messaging mechanism and, you know, the obviously very sensitive uh, physical operations. That makes sense. Let's get back to Matt. 
let's change gears for a minute. I mean, uh, you know, nuclear security was was one of the big topics at the uh, the, the event I attended. I remember you folks talking about um, sort of whole new avenues of research that you were undertaking or proposing. One of them had to do with analog control. I mean, there's a, you know, there was legislation in, in Congress passed, I think, passing some budget for research into analog control, unhackable control. Um, can you talk about that? You know, what are, are you folks doing stuff there? Are, is that somewhere you're, you're thinking of going? What, is, what does analog control mean? What, what could it mean? What's the right way to do this? Well, Andrew, that's, you know, you do hear, um, you know, rumblings about analog, unhackable. Unfortunately, I think, and this is an opportunity for me to touch on this, people's fear of digital being hackable somewhat has roots in the deterioration of people's understanding of what actually is happening inside their phones and their computers. Um, we've also elevated the abilities of hackers uh, to almost mythological capabilities. So let's, let's look at that for a minute. You know, one of the first things you really need to know to be a successful engineer in designing systems or a dedicated cyber person in the defensive role is you have to know your systems. You really do. You have to know how they work down to a fairly low decomposition because your knowledge of the system has to at least be as good as your adversaries. If it's not, then you're already at a disadvantage. Folks reach for this analog button, so I think sometimes is a response to their, you know, they're not understanding what's possible over in digital space. Um, so, so I think that's a background. I, I just want to cover that because, you know, we we terrorized people about, you know, the wily hacker and you know how they, you know, they're going to get us no matter what we do. To some extent, what they're really saying to you is, are you willing to put in? the time and energy to learn enough about your system to properly defend it with acceptable risk. Analog, though, the word analog is really uh, probably a misnomer. Really what people mean by digital is something that's software-based, uh, potentially based on a, a von Neumann architecture, a load, store, memory, CPU type of architecture. Um, and so there's some inherent um, vulnerabilities with those architectures. So let's say, for instance, the little CPUs that, or not, maybe not so little, that you might have in your controller can do controlling, but it also can stream cat videos in a different application. So these, these types of CPU architecture are very flexible, can do a lot of things. So really what I think the discussion needs to be is can we constrain the functionality of electronic circuitry even digital electronic circuitry, such that it does not have the vulnerabilities that a modern, you know, commercially available commodity type CPU has. And we are doing research in that area. Um, in different new new architectures, different in the von Neumann architecture, that do not have those vulnerabilities that can be counted on to work exactly 
what is the von Neumann architecture? Well, there's a couple of words that I wanted to touch on. Um, analog, you know, the true meaning of the word is basically non-digital. Analog is, you know, ranging between, you know, zero and a hundred, anything in between, whereas digital is a zero or a one. So, you know, an analog circuit might be one where you say, if the voltage gets above 60 volts, you know, trip the, the safety valve. And this is a, a piece of electronics with resistors and capacitors and such that, you know, measure the voltage and, and, uh, and you know, trigger uh, uh, an action. That's an analog circuit. A digital circuit is one where um, you have ones and zeros flying around. A von Neumann architecture is a digital architecture. There's ones and zeros flying around, but a von Neumann architecture is one where you have a CPU, a central processing unit, that uh, interprets the ones and zeros as memory addresses and as instructions. So this bit pattern means move the contents of register one to register two. And you've got these chunks of memory inside the CPU and you're, 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 you're carrying out basically machine instructions. That, you know, the difference between, uh, between a digital architecture that is von Neumann and a digital architecture that's not von Neumann is with a, a von Neumann architecture, you've got instructions. And if you can trick the, the, the system into changing memory or into interpreting, uh, you know, in, into looking at some data as if it were instructions. Well, the CPU is going to execute the data just as happily as it executes legitimate instructions. This is, this is the, the fundamental problem with von Neumann is you can, you can dump a bunch of data into memory and then say execute it. Whereas with a digital architecture, if all you've got is ones and zeros flying around and the, the transistors and the capacitors are doing things with the ones and the zeros, but none of it is, is an instruction. At no point do you take data and interpret it as instruction, as code. Um, it's, it's not von Neumann. So I think this is the distinction that he's trying to make uh, in, in terms of what's possible with, with uh, you know, the, the concept of, of this analog very vaguely. That's interesting, but I'm, I'm still a little fuzzy on, on some of the details. Can you give me like an example of a non-von Neumann digital circuit? Sure. Um, think, you know, think way back. Think first generation digital watches. There was no CPU in those watches. There was a, a, you know, a hand that went tick, tick, tick. The second hand went around. But inside there was digital logic. There was transistors. There was a little counter that uh, you know there was a, a little quartz crystal that that uh, vibrated when you apply a certain voltage that that you know you could you could uh, measure the vibrations as ones and zeros and there was a little counter i think 16 or 17 bits long that would count 60 odd thousand of these vibrations not because there's code executing to count the vibrations it's because the counter would see a one come by and the, the, the logic would add one to the counter. When the counter wrapped around to zero again or you know, reached a, a preset value, you, you know, send the signal, a digital signal to advance the, uh, the seconds hand, reset the counter to zero and start counting again. It's not a CPU executing instructions. It's just transistors doing their thing, counting up to a certain number and then resetting to zero. So that, you know, that now, modern digital watches have got CPUs in them. They got liquid crystal screens. Who knows what they got? But this is this is the old style uh, uh, digital watch. Was a truly digital circuit without a CPU, without the ability to execute instructions. It was non von Neumann. 
So that's my example of a digital circuit. But, you know, coming back to the industrial space, that was the same question I asked Matt, you know, for an example. So let's go back and listen to him. Can you give us an example of that? I mean, what, what kind of system are you, are you exploring? I mean, are we talking uh, custom CPUs? Are we talking gate array logic? What, what kind of examples can you give us? Well, I mean, we, we, have, a, we have a term for our, for our architecture. It's called SIMPLE, S-Y-M-P-L-E. And we can implement that architecture on any substrate. Remember that a, a, a gate array or an FPGA uh, really is just a sea of gates. You, just, you know, without an architecture burned into that FPGA, you really don't know what, you know, what that FPGA is doing or what its architecture is. For instance, when uh, my first exposure to FPGAs was the implementation of a volume and architecture in the FPGA to improve uh, manufacturability. This is a long time ago when digital computers were made with discrete components. And so FPGAs were a first step in bringing these custom architectures into a more of a VSLI environment. And subsequently now we, we have microprocessors that are made with you know very very dense technology. So so we can we can do these architectures on FPGAs, uh, A6, they can also be done in custom silicone, but the key is the architecture itself. So the architecture itself reverses the trend of simulating the world around you with a von Neumann architecture. So essentially a von Neumann architecture uses millions of tiny instructions arranged in you know myriads of different ways to simulate something. We're going to interrupt Matt for a second because he's covered a lot of little technical subjects. And Andrew, I could use a little bit of explaining. First off, gate arrays, are these related to logic gates, as I understand them? Uh, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, as I understand a logic gate, a gate is basically a transistor. This is, you know, the, the, the terms are largely interchangeable. Um, we're talking about, you know, I asked the question about gate arrays. I should, I should introduce that. A gate array is a chip full of transistors. I think they have between 100,000 and a million transistors nowadays in, in the modern gate arrays. The thing about a gate array is that the connections between the transistors are uh, flexible. They can be programmed, if you like. They can be burned into the chip very easily over the course of, a, you know, a couple of minutes with some, some special hardware. People use gate arrays when they want to arrange transistors in a particular way, when they want a hardware, basically when they want custom hardware, and they don't want to, the long turnaround of designing a chip, sending it to the foundry, you know, having three weeks later, the chip come back and go, nope, that's wrong, repeat at three week intervals. You can set, you know, take your transistor chip design, you know, provided you've got enough transistors in the gate array, map, you know, connect the transistors the right way in the gateway over a course of minutes in a, uh, you know, they call it a, a field programming uh, device. And now you've got custom hardware. And to, uh, you know, to Matt's point, if you have a gateway, you have logic, you have gates, you have transistors. If you've just randomly connected them, that's, you know, you'd have to understand the random connection to figure out what this chip is going to do when you're done with it. So he's saying you want to impose an architecture on it. He's going to talk more about the architecture. But uh, you know, 
the question of von Neumann is coming up here. I wanted to mention, if you deliberately design the the connections among the transistors in the uh, the gate array to mimic a, a CPU, you can do that. I mean, I remember back, well, this was a long time ago, 25, 30 years ago, you know, when I was in school, we did this. Um, we designed a, a 25,000 transistor CPU, a very tiny CPU. If you've got, you know, and these gate arrays have that many transistors, if you connect them up the right way, they are a CPU. So that's one kind of architecture you can impose on the gate array. There's other architectures, and this is what he's going to be talking about. Give you a good example. Let's say a, a ladder logic. Well, the people who do industrial code from here with ladder logic comes from the ladder logic diagrams that they would have seen in prior years. It had discrete relays, wiring buses, coils, lights, that kind of thing. Well, if you think about it, a modern PLC that has ladder logic programming is simply simulating a relay and a power buzz and that sort of thing. So, so that gives you a little understanding that the traditional CPU actually simulates the outside world no matter what. It's a cat video, it's, it's whatever. You can do anything. You can simulate anything. So by constraining the architecture, however, moving away from that simulation, now creating hardware constructs or hardware circuitry that implements a software uh, an actual software structure, then now you've moved that back into a medium where you don't have these unpredictable pathways within the software construct. So you can't, you know, there's no memory. There's no memory to do a buffer overflow or escape uh, and find the kernel. There's no kernel either. It's all uh, implemented. See, see, if you're familiar with the uh, way computer hardware works, Think about if, now that we're in the age of miniaturization, think about the arithmetic logic units of a computer and its registers that are dedicated for each individual function that you would have in your system. So we've been, we've been pretty successful in uh, uh, researching, building, and demonstrating that. As a matter of fact, next year we'll be moving into phase two where we... Uh, We'll further that research as far as reliability and resiliency of those architectures as well as demonstrate applications that would have more of a cyber uh, viewpoint to it. We, we did this research for safety. So in our world, safety and security are kind of the same things. I, I believe you might have heard me speak before that in Spanish and Chinese, safety and security is the same word. And so we kind of look at it that way. So this research we've done to improve or provide architectures for safety applications are also very secure from intentional tampering and hacking and that sort of stuff. Okay, Matt covered a lot there, but I'm still sort of confused on how it all fits together. Andrew, can you clarify some of that for me? Sure. I mean, uh, Matt was, was talking about chunks of digital logic. So, you know, he gave the example of an arithmetic logic unit. This is a standard part of a CPU. It's the part that adds stuff together and subtracts stuff and multiplies and divides. These are arithmetic functions. This is not the part of the CPU that decodes instructions 
and figures out that you need to add something or you you know it, the, the CPU has been told to do something. This is the part that does you know there, there's a, a digital signal a one comes in that says you know add these things together and it and it does it does what it's told. So you know like the the the, the digital watch it had a tiny little arithmetic unit in it that added one uh, every time the, the, the quartz crystal oscillated. And when it reached a certain number, it uh, you know went back to zero and, and uh, sent a signal to advance the, the second hand. That's a piece of, of uh, it's a unit of digital logic. Um, and so that unit cannot be tricked into executing arbitrary instructions. There's no instruction decoder in that hardware. It doesn't know how to execute an instruction. All it knows is how to multiply and divide. I understand what you're saying, and it's interesting, but at the same time, couldn't an attack even just constitute um, turning something that has two functions, either on or off, the opposite of what you want it to be at any given time? The short answer is yes, but the, the longer answer is um, who's turning it on and off? I mean, this is a digital system. This is logic. These are transistors. Which transistors are deciding to turn it on and off? How are you tricking those transistors and so on? This is the, the uh, I think, the, the topic of architecture that, that uh, he's starting to, to get into. And I think he's, he's going to continue in the next, uh, the next answer to the next question. An architecture talks about, I have many blocks of functionality. I've got the timer you know, in my digital watch, in my set of transistors, and I've got an arithmetic logic unit in my set of transistors, and I might have other units of functionality in those transistors. What's the architecture for gluing these things together? How do I decide which of these units of functionality do what and when? The, the control architecture, I think, is what he's talking about. Okay, now let me, let me dig uh, just a little bit deeper if I can. If we're taking, you know, for example, um, compiling ladder logic into uh, gate array transistor layouts. Um, you know, this was done 20 years ago. It was done for performance um, because the gate array logic was much faster than the, the simulation, the CPU simulation. But, you know, the uh, I think the reason it never caught on was uh, lack of flexibility. Now you've, you know, encoded the, the, the ladder logic in the gate array. Changing it, you've got to go and start changing, I don't know, transistor masks or something. Um, do you not lose flexibility if you go this this route? Well, let's talk about what flexibility we're talking about. Uh, what, what we did was to take the IC61131 function block language and essentially implement it in the hardware. In, in the interest of time, I won't try to explain any more deeper than that. But imagine that if each function block in the function block library Instead of being a software routine that was made up of, you know, discrete machine instructions for the particular architectures compiled for, that each one of those function blocks now was a hardware routine that had been designed with hardware tools, not software tools. Okay, so so now you can arrange those hardware function blocks in various orders or sequences achieve a high level of flexibility. So for process safety and control applications, you can do most of the things that you would do with a purely software machine by arranging these blocks in a certain order. Now, uh, what we call that is we call that sequencing. And so we can sequence them using a fairly simple 
string of command registers that say do, do this block, do that block, you know, and that's all that's all there is to it. It's easy to verify, uh, and it can be once the program is decided to be uh, what that program is designed or that sequence. I prefer to say designed. You can for then you can you can hard code those blocks, and you know when they're not modifiable by anybody, you would you would have to you know reburn the chip. But you've been able to create that. Uh, you also separate your operational parameters, so you can have those. Those are working registers. We'll use that terminology. Uh, and so you, what you have is a, a fairly uh, robust system that is configurable and flexible. You're not going to be getting patches for this thing regularly because there are no patches. You know, there are no need to patch it, you know, unless you actually found a design problem with it. Um, but because it's formally verified, which is other, let me touch on that, because it uses the, the physics of hardware, it can be formally verified, which is something you can't do with hardware. I mean, excuse me, with software. So, you know, again, you know, the, this is not something that you would find necessarily in every application for, for those that need high reliability, robustness, or safety, or where the security implications are high. These kinds of architectures would be very effective in uh, eliminating or substantially eliminating your attack surface. So Matt talked there. I mean, I asked a question about, about ladder logic. Let me give just a, a, a few words of background for, for anyone not familiar with it. You know, the IEC 61131 function block language is a, a graphic programming language that uh, looks like a circuit diagram. So you take chunks of functionality like... Uh, you know, uh, uh, something that adds two inputs and produces an output, and uh, you put it into what looks like a circuit diagram. You wire the, the, you draw a line between the output of one function block to the input of the other. It's like a data flow language. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it uses the, the symbols that are familiar to electrical engineers. So electrical engineers who are familiar with designing uh, circuit boards can look at a PLC and not have to learn Visual Basic or who you know some programming language. They they can look at it and, and instinctively go, I know how to do this, and arrange the the logic in such a way that the the PLC does the uh, you know reads the inputs, come you know converts the inputs into outputs in a way that that makes sense to the engineer. What I asked about was converting this into gate array logic. You know, it's it's possible to say, well, it it looks like a circuit diagram. Um, can you convert it into a circuit? And the answer is yes. You generally can compile these things. And what what uh, you know what Matt was talking about was was um, taking these primitive graphic primitives in the programming language and turning each of them into a chunk of digital logic uh, in a circuit. Now the circuit could be a custom integrated circuit that's burned once in a foundry and is immutable forever. It could be the gate array logic. It could be, a, you know, it's a circuit. It, as long as you've got, uh, you know, the transistors wired in the right way, you can build up these function blocks in hardware. And each of the function blocks can only do one thing. And the, the point is that if you chain these function blocks together, then there's no way to to trick the uh, the resulting circuit into I don't know, you know, sending a, a, a web request to hackersarus.com, uh, you know, you, you can't do that. It's not, the, this, the, the electronics is not capable of, of, you know, doing that function 
all it can do is the predefined functions wired together in a certain way. And you had also asked Matt, I believe, about flexibility, but didn't really get to touch on it fully. Uh, yeah, so uh, in my understanding, you know, Matt's and Epri's focus thus far has been uh, the architecture, figuring out an, ar an architecture that is flexible enough to uh, encode the functions that are typically needed uh, in, in industrial sites into hardware and uh, an architecture that will be resistant to tampering so that you cannot trick it into executing arbitrary instructions. Um, you know, I asked about flexibility, and he, he answered about uh, architecture. I'm guessing that, you know, this is their focus, and they're, they're, they're leaving the, the implementation details to, to vendors down the road. I mean, Epi's not a vendor. They're not going to manufacture this stuff. Um, I'm guessing the vendors, you know, have lots of ways to do this. You know, here's, here's one example. Um, it's possible to imagine a PLC where the program is, let's say, one of these gate arrays, um, and the gate array is in a separate module that's part of the, the PLC, a physical module that you, you unplug. And, you know, it's, a, I don't know, big as your hand. It's got connectors on one end. You plug it in and it does its thing. You can unplug it, plug in a different module. You've got a label on one saying, you know, produce uh, steering wheels. And you've got a label on the other one saying, you know, produce brake pedals. And, uh, you know, different, different logic is in there. Um, this is one way to, to solve the problem. It's less flexible than press a button and reprogram the PLC, but it's also less vulnerable than that as well. Can you just talk about cybersecurity? You know, you've got, you've got strong opinions. What's the right way to do cybersecurity for PowerGen? What's the biggest thing people are getting wrong? What do we need to change most urgently? Well, I think, I think the thing that needs to change most urgent, urgently Legs out, don't lean, all that comes, you know, all that ladder safety, right? 
world, most of that most of that responsibility for the security is pushed to the end user right now. What we need to do is move that back. Goes for the, the, the power sector as well as any other. Push that back down the supply chain. So the vendors need to now take more responsibility for one building in security in their systems, but number two, telling you what they didn't secure. Now, certifications are great, but a lot of times certifications say I'm certified to a certain thing. It's more important really to know what it's not certified for. Because a lot of these products you buy, and there's a lot that, you know, it's like buying any building block, there's a lot of responsibility for the integrator and the end user to hook it together properly, configure properly, that sort of thing. We need that kind of information throughout the supply chain so that by the time you, I get it as an end user, my job is to use it at the level that I'm using it at and not have to worry about all that other stuff. And so I think that's, that's where the, especially the power sector needs to go. Can I ask uh, you know, a clarifying question there? Um, you, you folks have a, uh, uh, a risk assessment methodology that's very data intensive. When you're talking about sort of standards and certifications, um, I mean, it, uh, you know, uh, it, it makes a degree of sense to say, push it down the supply chain, the vendors should be able to you know, provide these certifications. But it's, it's always possible to take certified secure products and arrange them into a woefully insecure system. You still need some, some uh, you know, intelligence applied by the systems integrator and by the, the owners and operators. Um, is is, is that, that methodology the missing link, or are you thinking that there's something else going on there? Well, you know, I think that methodology to some extent has been a missing link, and you, and you ask, and I'll tell you, every head of development has, you know, in production the technical assessment methodology, Technical assessment methodology is a methodology that methodology, excuse me, that leads you through a structure process to discover your exploit uh, targets that you might have in your uh, components or systems. What those attack pathways are, what your attack surface is, uh, what your exploit uh, pathways are, and even your exploit techniques. What that does for you, it gives you a structured way to discover things about your system so you can use it as a learning tool, but also to understand what your what your exploit um, exposure might be. Well, the result of that activity in the end is information that says, you know, I've hardened my system. Here's what, you know, the things I've done to protect against these exploit exposures and here are my residual vulnerabilities these are the things that the next person that uses this particular piece of equipment will have to deal with so visualize it as a a chained forward thing where if everybody in the chain evaluates what they have and pushes that forward the burden on the last person in the chain is greatly reduced yes they do have to assemble it and configure it correctly but now you can concentrate on their level of the architecture versus all the levels below. Harry was one of our very earliest episodes. Even I, admittedly, uh, don't remember all the details of how the EPRI methodology worked. Andrew, can you give us a, uh, a rundown? 
Sure, that was Harry Paul from OSIsoft, and he was talking about how OSIsoft is contributing to the uh, the EPRI methodology. The EPRI, you know, risk assessment methodology is one. It's very data intensive. Each of the the vendors of a component um, documents how the component processes information basically what are the inputs what are the outputs what are the the vulnerabilities what are the ways to attack the component and then people who build systems out of a bunch of components together can take these descriptions some of these you know these uh, components characteristics will compensate for vulnerabilities in other components the system will have a different list you know presumably a smaller list of vulnerabilities and attack paths than the original sum of the components did. And you can take these, you know, systems and even systems of systems and use these descriptions in the end to assemble a bunch of components into a system and address the, uh, the you know, understand the vulnerabilities, use the components to compensate for each other's vulnerabilities to a degree and, you know, wind up with a system that you say, okay, here's what the, the residual vulnerabilities that I still need to address with other mechanisms. It's a, it's a mechanism for composing systems or composing, you know, pieces into systems. And it's very data intensive. So when, when, uh, uh, you know, Matt talked about pushing stuff into the supply chain. I'm thinking this was a big part of it. He's talking about the vendors uh, producing these descriptions for their components so that the systems integrator in the end has the information they need to be able to compose systems properly into uh, a secure result. And, you know, the, the analogy, I think, with the, the ladder is apt in terms of you go to the ladder, you look at the description, you understand the limitations of the ladder, and you know how to use the ladder in a, a broader system of, I don't know, replacing shingles on a roof um, safely in order to uh, achieve your goal because you understand the limitations of each of the pieces of, of, of the puzzle in that, that system of, of uh, technology you're putting together to solve a problem. We always like to leave our guests with the last word. Is there a, a thought you'd like to, to leave with our with our listeners? A call to action? Uh, yeah, yeah, sort of. I, I think I think there's a lot of discussion in the industries about compliance, you know, versus not, you know, a technical sort of a view. So what I would say is, the people who create things you have to comply to are well-meaning folks who really want to do good. And so I think what we need is a better, a little bit like the ITOT um, reality show you hear people talk about where the OT people argue with the IT people. I think the technical people need to be more willing to engage with the regulatory people who set compliance to move uh, the cyber world towards performance-based uh, approaches that reward people for knowing their system. I, I don't think we're rewarded as much for knowing our system as we ought to be. Because, you know, if it's compliance that we're after, we can often achieve compliance without really knowing a lot about the systems we're protecting. But if we're rewarded for knowing about our systems, then maybe we can move the needle to a more secure world where the practitioners can spend their time learning their systems and securing them and also be compliant because that's real important too. But but that balance between compliance 
Okay, so Matt's message seems pretty simple. Know your systems. Understand your systems. Absolutely. Understand your systems better than your enemies do. Um, you know, and I think his is, uh, you know, a lot of his discussion about uh, engaging with the supply chain, pushing back on vendors. It's about, uh, you know, he, he talked about certification. It's not just certification. It's certification and documenting the nature of the system, the, the limitations of the system, the residual vulnerabilities of the system, so that when you use the, the EPRI methodology to uh, assemble components into larger systems, um, you have the information that you need to understand the, 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 uh, the overall security posture. Again, know your system and you know, put programs in place in the industry, in you know, your purchasing process to, uh, to be able to have the information to, to know your system. So uh, you know, I think that's a, a great point. Okay, now that we've gotten our last words in, Andrew, there's one more thing we have to talk about before we go. We're starting a new promotion for our podcast, trading reviews for free copies of books. Yeah, my black book, Secure Operations Technology, came out uh, in January. Um, and, uh, you know, in the book, I, I document, it's really, it's a work of journalism. I document what the world's most secure sites do. I mean, the threat environment continues to get nastier. Uh, all of us are increasing the strength of our security programs as a result. What the world's most secure sites do, I suggest, is in all of our futures because they're already doing, you know, some really strong stuff and we are all strengthening our security programs. The thing is that very little has been written about what the world's most secure sites do. They ask different questions. They get different answers. They, they have a completely different perspective of industrial security. So in the Black Book, I, I made an effort to document what they do, how they do it, how they see the world, how they see industrial security, um, so that you know we can all benefit from, from that perspective. And uh, so here's the deal. Um, we were hoping to get some reviews posted for the, the podcast here. Um, if you can post a review for us, good, bad, or ugly, send me a, uh, a pointer to your review on, on LinkedIn or an email, andrew.ginter at waterfall-security.com. Send me your shipping address. I'll be happy to send you uh, one of the, uh, the, the black books while supplies last. Thanks so much to Matt for speaking with you, Andrew, and thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. Always a pleasure. We'll catch you next time, Nate. This has been the Industrial Security Podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Mm-hmm.